0: Welcome to Tasty Grinds, the podcast where we talk to people with fascinating careers in food and dig into how they pull it off. I'm your host, Dabney Goff. Hey friends, today's chat is with Annie Novak, the Brooklyn-based horticulturalist, rooftop farmer, and author. Annie is founder and director of Growing Chefs, a field-to-fork food education program, manager of the Edible Academy at the New York Botanical Garden, and co-founder and farmer of Eagle Street Rooftop Farm in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Her writings have been published in The Atlantic, Diner Journal, and others, and she has a book coming out. It's called The Rooftop Growing Guide, How to Transform Your Roof into a Vegetable Garden or Farm, and it comes out in just a few months. Annie's energy, positive outlook, and can-do attitude are really contagious. It's easy to see why she's emerged at the forefront of the urban farming movement. This episode has quite a few literary and cultural references thrown in, and it's all detailed in the show notes at TastyGrinds.com. Annie Novak, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, a pleasure. Happy to happy to chat. Um, so just to start off, what was your first job ever?
1: Um. My first job, like something I was paid money to do, you mean? Yeah. I mean, when have I never worked? I've always worked. Um, I, Babysitting, actually, now that I think about it. The first person who paid me to do something was my mom's friend, and I babysat for twins. And I'd never met twins before, and I just remember thinking, uh, I was so embarrassed I couldn't tell them apart. <laughs> and so it, it was like, that was like probably the only thing about babysitting that was bad, is I was afraid I was going to lose one and not be able to tell who was, who was lost. Right. <laughs>
0: Um, did you learn any particularly valuable formative lessons from that job?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know I right now the work that I do, I work in agriculture and um it's specifically in urban agriculture in new York city and um a huge component of my work is is teaching and sharing what I do, and then the other thing which you wouldn't really think about till you have to deal with it is um patience and being able to handle emergencies well and planning ahead. And I think, you know, from the get go, probably why I was such a good babysitter uh, and ended up doing the kind of work that I do is that um, I think you kind of, hopefully you're, if you're good with kids, you're good with all of that. Um, Although I've seen a lot of parents and other people around children who are not patient and don't plan ahead and don't handle emergencies well and it's fine. But if you can handle kids, you can handle plants. That's for sure.
0: (laughs) I like, I like the emergencies and planning because um, you have kind of all contingencies covered that way.
1: Oh, God. Well, I'll tell you, even this morning, two things happened. There were huge emergencies. One is that we had a catastrophic amount of damage on our coal crops, like our broccoli and our kale from caterpillars. Um, someone left. We used like a protective row cover over our broccoli and our kale, and someone left it off last night, and there were just they were just eaten, and that was what we were supposed to plant today. So there goes three months of prepping mm-hmm. and work. And then about 20 minutes later, uh, one of the students that I work with got stung in the ear by a bee. Oh. So, yeah, I know. So I had to deal with that and um, almost simultaneously. Um, So it's actually a perfect example of the the reason I'm proud that I've been doing this for nearly 20 years uh, (laughs) is being able to handle that with with grace and panache.
0: Yeah, sounds like you definitely would need that. Um, And how did you get interested in, in growing food?
1: Um, I actually, I came about it through a really funny way. I was, I was in, I was in college and I was in West Africa studying oral storytelling. Um, narratives have always been a really, um, like time thread of interest in my life. And I met, uh, I would do a video store just to see what movies Ghanaians were watching. It's a really good way to tell when you're traveling, like what people think of America because you walk into a video store and if they have a bunch of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Mission Impossible and all those movies, you can, you you, you know, you know when you say you're from the U.S. and they're like, oh yeah, and then talk about those movies or whatever. So, so I'm in the video store and I saw a guy sitting in the corner with the biggest smile. I mean, ear to ear, and he was one of the first people I'd met in West Africa who spoke pitch perfect Queen's English, <laughs> and I had barely learned any Fante yet. So I was so excited to talk to him and I went over and introduced myself in Fante and he broke it in English. And, Anyway, we became fast friends. It turns out he was a student at the same university I was at in Ghana. And it turns out, as we discussed over lunch, that his father had founded the first fair trade chocolate company in all of West Africa. And it's, it still exists today. It's called Quapacoco. And it sells in the U.S. under the brand name Divine.
0: And I know oh, Hope, yeah. which
1: carries it. And yeah. he was telling me, yeah, so I he was telling me all about it. And being a person interested in narrative, I was like, well, your life sounds fascinating. Which... I'm sure we don't have time to still today, but one quick thing about it is, is his father, while getting his business degree in Canada, was summoned back to West Africa by his matrilineal side of his family because he was um, named the chief voodoo priest of the largest ethnic group in West Africa called the Ashante. So this fully educated Ghanaian man uh, studying abroad and actually I think about to marry a Canadian woman goes back to become a voodoo priest and years passed and it gets more interesting, but he ends up finding this chocolate company founding it. And so that was his son that I had met. And um, I went out into the fields with Na'Kwesi, my friend, and visited my first chocolate farm because I love chocolate. Who doesn't? And in the course of about three hours of bushwhacking, um, and it was so hot, I just remember the mascara that I was wearing (laughs) foolishly had sealed my eyes shut. Like I couldn't (laughs) open one eye. And I was asking for water and I was it a super baby. And um, I finally tuned in Na'Kwesi and I said, you know, I'm really sorry to be such a diva, but where the F is the chocolate? And everyone started cracking up. There's two guys with like no shirts, sweating bullets, machetes out to cut through the jungle. And they're like, Annie, we have been walking through chocolate for three hours and you just didn't know what it looked like. And it's true. We were walking through a chocolate farm and I just didn't recognize the plant. So in that moment at 20, 20 years old, it was such a lightning bolt out of the sky. One, I hate feeling stupid. And two, I didn't know anything about food. And it's it's funny to tell the story now because that was 14 years ago. And when I graduated college and having gone much deeper and written my thesis on agriculture and I was a human geographer, I told my mom the minute I stepped out of college, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I want to be a farmer. And this is not cool in 2005. And I think about, I want to say it was within two years after that. The New York Times put an article out that said, you know, young people are, all becoming farmers in droves. This was before the economic crisis. So this article was the beginning of what I think I'm riding now, this wave of
0: Mm.
1: young people interested in food. But back to your original question, why did I get interested in food? Um, I, I think obtusely it's because I felt at the time that I didn't know anything about it and I didn't want to feel dumb and I felt like we weren't connected to food and all of these things, thank God are now incredibly cool and have supported my, what felt like very off-beaten path career, um, teaching other people the same exact joyful epiphany that I felt when I was standing there feeling like a jackass in the middle of a chocolate farm.
0: (laughs) That's really, that's really amazing. And what a, um, what a serendipitous thing. I mean, that could have (laughs) easily not. I like
1: to eat chocolate.
0: Right. (laughs) But you could have not met him. You know
1: what I mean? Well, or he could have said my father's a fishmonger right. and I'm a lifelong vegetarian. I could have been like that gross. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and all seriousness, seriously, I mean, the, the other thing that happened very crucially, and I don't wish this on anyone, but the year I graduated college about a month before my dad passed away in a car accident. And mm. there's something very profound about the relationship we have with the absolute necessities in life. We need, you know, food, shelter, companionship, hopefully, And, uh, and I think in education, but when my dad passed away, my sisters and I collected around each other in a really serious way. And one of the things I remember thinking in, in in all honesty was I have to know how to do this. I have to be able to produce food Hmm. because I don't want to ever be bereft. And we were, we were financially bereft. We were very emotionally bereft and I, I didn't want to ever put anyone I loved in that position. Um, so in a way I think, which is practical, I wanted to learn how to do something that no one could ever take from me and that I could always share with other people. And the really cool thing is that every farmer I've ever worked for, I might just be picking the right people, but everyone I've ever worked for is a tremendous giver. They will work you to the bone, and they themselves work very hard, but I have never been hungry, and that has been even through moments in my life where I've been um, incredibly worried about money and, and my, my, my situation as an adult. Um, so if I can share that with people that, you know, mm-hmm. we talk about food justice issues in the food community all the time in urban agriculture, but it is no matter how room out of your situation, you, you never know. And um, being somebody like field to handle emergencies, I think that was probably part of it as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that it speaks to the, The act of feeding, creating things and sharing kind of all go hand in hand very naturally,
1: you know. Oh, deeply. So one would hope. I mean, in the best of food systems, that is that is the point. I think what's really interesting about food, the layer that we lay on top of that is when you have a food system that's built around walking into a third party space like a store Mm -hmm. and purchasing things based on their packaging and taking them home out of their packaging. and barely processing them before putting them on a table. When you take away the growing and the, sh- and the cooking and the harvest and the sharing. I mean, I don't know how to explain it without sounding less like a hippie, but I, I think having gone from one world into the other, it is so deeply hard to go back. And mm-hmm. I even living in the greatest restaurant world, I mean, New York city is like the greatest place for chef and the food is so good. I went out to dinner last night and I had, I don't usually, and it was just weird. Like just being served food, it felt so separate from the way I usually eat. Uh, It was a pleasure in a way. I think the best part was not having to do dishes, but, (laughs) but it just felt, it feels you, once you get the, once you get in this deep, it is very hard to go back. And thankfully again, with what I do becoming popular as it has been, it seems, you know, in the 1970s and then in, you know, there, there are always been these rises of, of this like homesteady style Mm -hmm. movement, but the fact that it's on everyone's radar and that people talk about it openly and that it's not, you know, it's not a niche. It's, it's becoming a a dominant lifestyle. I'm grateful for that because um, I have a lot more people I can eat with <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at their house or in mine. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, I think, I think the thing that I'm more worried about is that gray area where you're not at that beautiful restaurant mm. and you're not cooking a home cooked meal. If that's that gray space occupies 80% of the way most people eat. And I'm just like making that number up, but that, that, that is the part that I want to tweak, and that's mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah, that would be that would be the area I'd want to see glossed up a little bit with some color in either direction, restaurant or home cooking. I don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But
0: moving away from the kind of mindless consumption.
1: Yeah, yeah. in everything, but we're talking about food. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god, if I have to see another bad movie when there's so much good other other <laughs> entertainment out there, for example. Yeah. True. True.
0: So, um, so, you kind of already answered this this question at the very beginning, but one of, as I was sort of um, doing some research on you, it occurred to me that you work for the New York Botanical Garden at its Edible Academy. Mm-hmm. You run, you started and run Eagle Street Rooftop Farm. You're at the helm of a nonprofit organization. You have written all over the place, including for The Atlantic, um, and you have a book coming out. So, do you ever just like laze around? do you ever have
1: yeah, downtime? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, here's this thing that I hope everyone experiences in their lifetime. And that is um, doing what you love, period. And so I think in the context that you just, you describe what I do, it's all related to my job, because I'm employed in all of those places. But mm-hmm. um, I mean, you know, I think everyone has that many things going on in their lives. It's just put in different pockets. You know, like if I, I suppose if I hadn't written a book this year, I'd still be, you know, doing bike racing. Or if I wasn't running growing chefs, I'd probably be um, coaching crew, which, you know, these are things that I used to have time to do that I loved. And they just, they come and go, you know, like I obviously at some point will probably have to drop the number of hours I spend on my work life in order to spend it in other areas of my life, like going to the opera, which I miss. But, um, but no, I think I think that's that's so exciting to be able to say you've got a chocolate block schedule. And here's the clutch thing, and I'm I am a New Yorker speaking to a woman in Hawaii. <laughs> I have a winter. Okay. Right. And during that winter it gets a little quieter. And that's so lovely. It's one of my favorite things about living in a four seasons environment in the career that I have. And if growing food teaches you anything tangential to the act of growing food, it is to deeply respect the 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 climate around you I mean mm. the the localized weather it's like it is the most beautiful thing and it it's kind of like when you first learn how to sing and you realize that you have this instrument in your back pocket like you can just sing anytime you want I am never bored because even if I don't recognize the plants or I'm not listening to any music or I like don't know what's going on just noticing the weather is the most spine-tinglingly cool it's like 24 hour entertainment when you look up and you realize like the wind just shifts a direction. Or, are like, I feel the barometric pressure drop. Or, So yeah, you're, you actually asked me about how much I work. I would, if I wasn't being paid to do this stuff, I would be nerding out in any way. So I'm glad mm-hmm. I get to put it on my website and say that I'm working so hard. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. um, and
0: when people ask you what you do for a living, what do you say?
1: Um, God, you know, the last couple of years I've gotten so touchy about that question because there's nothing uh, – what I say is I'm, I'm going say I'm a horticulturalist mm-hmm. because I think it's the quickest way to say I work with plants. It's actually a very specific title, and I imagine, you know, someone, some horticulturist out there is getting very annoyed that I'm using their word. But but if more closely prodded, I will say I work in, in – you know, I work with food plants. I'm an educator. Um at this point, I now get to say I'm an author, which is so exciting yeah. because I've been waiting my entire life to put a book in the library that says dedicated to dad. And I'm so Aww. pumped. So Aww. I'm an author now. I guess I'm a writer. But no, I horticulturist probably. I work with plants and then some people and then I have cooking and a food. <laughs> <Cheers>. <laughs> um,
0: and tell me a little bit about your work at the Botanical Garden. What do you do there and how did you get there and all that?
1: Yeah, it's the Botanic Garden is the great love of my life. Um, it's 125 years old next year, and I'm so happy to be with an older person. Um, we uh, so I started there two days out of college as an intern. As, as I mentioned, my dad had passed away, and I actually had had plans to join the Peace Corps. But one little known but practical fact about the Peace Corps is if you've had a tragedy in your personal life in the last year, they generally won't accept your application. Hmm. It's the notion that You might go abroad and have a Mm. breakdown. I was fortunately and unfortunately, I was home when my dad passed away. And then I, within two days afterwards, had flown out back to New York for my interview with Peace Corps. I had this interview. It went great. And then right at the end, they asked that question. And Mm. I said, in fact, I had had something happen. And I just remember, God bless her. The woman stood up and just left the room. And then I was left there for like 20 minutes. And then they came back and said, "Um, actually. Mm. So then I was sort of rudderless. And I was weeping about this with a very good friend of mine, my friend Sam, and he mentioned that he had just applied for this wonderful internship at the New York Botanical Garden called the Everett Internship, and it's run by a woman, Edith Everett, um, or funded rather, and I was luckily given that internship and graduated on Friday, Monday morning, started work there. I remember, I think it was allocated as 40 hours a week, and you basically were paid $5 an hour, and that first year, I probably worked like 70 hours a week. I was just slaving away. I loved it. And the really cool thing is um, that job was seasonal and part time. So for six of my first years there, I had every winter off for four months and I would save all the money that I had um, accrued by growing my own food and not buying groceries. I mean, I didn't even take the subway the first two years I was in New York. I was so frugal because we were, you know, dealing with the aftermath of Mm. everything that happened in our family. Point being, um, I would travel to the Southern Hemisphere on a couple thousand dollars worth of safe food money and I would go to farmer's markets in say Peru or New Zealand and I would just walk around until I met someone. I'd be like, Hey, can I work on your farm? And, uh, got a lot of no's, got some yeses and spent, spent that time just building up hands-on knowledge. I mean, it was like the best form of grad school ever. And there were some scrapes and disasters, but it worked out. Okay. Anyway, so that was six years and I moved up and up and up at the banana guards. And now I'm actually the manager full time of the site that I, first started at as an intern, and um, it's gorgeous and is about to undergo a huge renovation um, to become a year-round facility, which is a really big deal because, like I said, it's always been seasonal. Mm -hmm. The neat thing, though, is that, as I said, I was an Everett intern, so I was an intern in a program. Eleven years after starting that internship, I, this year, had the chance to meet Edith Everett, and I met her a couple times, but I, I went over to her and I sort of explained my whole career trajectory there, and I said, you know coming out of a of, of period of grief like we did with my father's death and coming into a world that I had never experienced. I'd never planted plants. I had never, I'd only studied it. Right. I'd studied chocolate in West Africa and I, I said, it is very rare you meet a person, an individual, and you can say you changed my life. That woman changed my life. Like where I worked changed my life. I, my father's death changed my life. All these things that fund, the funding that woman gives to that program, the fact that I got that internship is, is why I'm here today. And it is, so cool to shake that person's hand.
0: Wow. What was she like?
1: She's awesome. I mean, she in general the, the New York Botanical Garden attracts some of the most interesting, well well thought out, deeply caring philanthropists. Um, you know, we're all plant nerds. You know, some of us just have more money than others. <laughs>
0: And then in uh two thousand five you started a nonprofit called Growing Chefs. So what made you um what led you to do that?
1: So Growing Chefs at the at the time, this is my first year of my internship, I left that internship, or rather it ended very sadly, and I looked around the scene of New York and I knew I wanted to teach everything that I was excited about. I, I wanted everyone to know how cool it was that food came from plants. And um, Alice Waters has been a longtime hero of mine. And she, of course, has the gorgeous side project, The Edible Schoolyard. And at the time, that was really just based out of California. So I toyed with the of moving to California, and I decided I still love New York. And so I decided I would just start my own nonprofit because, and I would say this to any young person looking for work, if you don't see the job you want, if you create the job you want, and you name yourself the director of it, yeah. and you make it a nonprofit, and you go chasing after funding, and you find the right people to support you, you know, go get it, girl. So that's basically what I did. I just I developed the curriculum I wanted to see and I developed a program I thought made sense and I it was cool. not only was it about this narrative that I was excited about and about local organic food, but I you know, thanks to the schools that I've been educated at from grade school on up through college, you know, I had a very clear approach that I guess is probably summarized best by people like Joseph Campbell, who's one of the most amazing teachers that has ever existed. And um, one of the, my favorite quotes of his is he says, say yes to the hearty adventure. <laughs> and that's basically it. I mean, you, you have to be very aware that inside of every child that you're teaching is a, is a small person who's going to grow up to be an adult. And you have a big impact on how that shapes out. And at the end of the day, you know, I'm there to change people's eating habits. I'm there to get them thinking about the environment. I want to keep the curiosity alive in kids so that as grown-ups they become effective, interesting, engaged, active, participatory people. Because what really kills us and the reason we buy so much crap is because we're bored. And um, you know, I'm never bored. There's a great John Berryman poem about boredom and and uh he has this line, he says, Life, my friends, is boring. We must not say so and 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 it goes on from there and he basically explains that he's just sort of over it. And I remember reading that in high school and being so pissed. Like, who is this grown up? What a jerk. And, uh, and then I realized later I think he was being ironic. But, um, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, growing that's, shops came out of my passion for anything. And it just happened at that time to be out food. And um, thankfully, it has remained so. We actually now operate in several schools around New York and have a very large staff. Um, I've been very lucky that it turns out there are a lot of other enthusiastic, intelligent, wonderful people out there and I just rope them in when I catch them. That's awesome.
0: I love your advice about if you don't see the job you want just go just go make it and I think that is really relevant yes. not just for young people.
1: Yeah, and I meet, you know, in the work that I'm in it's it's very um it being a very popular and appealing job. Uh a lot of career changers come to me whether it's at the rooftop farm or the plant garden. And the thing I always tell them, uh, this is actually another piece of advice I got from a wonderful organization called the Greenhorns, which is for young farmers. Yeah, I've and them. they have, yeah, they're awesome. So Severin told me when I was first meeting her, she has this great quote. She says, "Your network is your nest egg," mm. and particularly in farming, when money ebbs and flows, it seems as often as the, the good weather, um, you want pe- you want people in your life, and people make people support your ideas and your projects, and I meet a lot of people who are transitioning out of careers and they are going from one extreme to another and they're feeling a little, um, adrift. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, the first right step you made is just showing up here. Like you showing up and telling me in the middle of my vegetable garden, this is something I'm interested in. And then, and then this is going to sound, um, silly because I've just spent the last half an hour talking about myself, but, um, honestly don't talk about yourself too much. Mm. (laughs) Because if I'm a grown-up and you're there to learn more about what I do and your career transitioning, the more you can ask questions, the better. Because for one, you're going to figure out if what I do is really what you think it is. I work my butt off. I am always tired. And if that's what you want, the rewards are huge. But, um, I, yeah, I met a woman the other day, actually, and she, she talked to me for like 45 minutes about what she used to do and how she hated it and then kind of got around to why she wants to do what I do. And I thought, you know, you've got to figure this out a different way.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. sort of turn away from the past and look at what's ahead of you. Exactly. Which comes back to asking questions.
1: Yes, and yeah. saying yes to the hearty adventure. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh
0: and also you started a rooftop garden.
1: Oh, we haven't even gotten to talk to the rooftop. <laughs> haven't even gotten to that yet. So I <laughs> I co-founded in 2009. I I was very lucky to be um brought into a conversation that had been started by a very supportive building owner and a green roof company and my co-founder. And I now run the farm. Um, It's a really interesting situation because, and this ties into the book that I just finished writing, the rooftop growing guide Um, rooftops for whatever awesome magnetic reason attract uh, a lot of people who have never grown anything before. And I always (laughs) wonder, I think it's circumstantial, you know, you, but I always wonder why that would be the first place you start because it, it is full of challenges and it's a beautiful view. I mean, I think that mm. once you're on a roof, you want to do all sorts of crazy things, you know. But, um, but, uh, but I, yeah. So what I love about the project and the the Eagle Tree Rooftop Farm has paid homage to this for six years. In the six years we've been growing, is that we get so many bright-eyed and bushy-tailed people of all ages who who want who want what they see they want it on their roof and i and i what I keep trying to convince people is you know what we represent we are we are first and foremost a green roof, and that can be possible with or without food mm-hmm. so the the challenge of our farm is that we are a green roof that is also an agricultural roof, and why that's a challenge is because green roofs, by their nature and their engineering, were first conceptualized and now designed to retain stormwater, principally, in areas where there's a lot of concrete and impermeable surfaces. And mm-hmm. that, that stormwater retention is really vital, particularly in a city like New York, where we have massive issues with you know, stormwater runoff. Um, the next thing they do is they, they act as um, uh, cooled, cooling spaces in areas of heat island effect. So again, like a dense city like New York um, or a valley city like Mexico City. Um, the thing they're not... I haven't even... Gotten around to the plant palette, but the thing they're not designed to do really is grow food, and the reason for that is really simple. You know, soil, which is at the heart of good food. Generally speaking, the stuff that grows good food is is clay. It's it's rich in humus. It's um it's worked regularly and it mm. is amended regularly. So we're talking about things that are weighty, and then you add weight. You mm. know, and and then the really interesting thing about it is greener soil our greener growing media is generally engineered to be as lightweight as possible and to drain well, because you Mm. don't want extra weight on the roof in the form of water, for example, or in the form of, you know, compost retaining water or what have you. So a lot of, a lot of what I've discovered through the last six years is that you're kind of like, I don't know. It's kind of like, I don't know if it's like having a really beautiful horse, but then always riding it backwards or like, you know, I can't even think of the right analogy, but basically there's something really at first blow, really lovely and natural and perfect about the idea that in a given in a dense city, let's just like landscape the roofs. And then there's also this huge question mark about is it the best way to grow vegetables? Now, mm-hmm. I have the awesome perspective of growing vegetables in many locations. And one of them, New York Garden, is incredibly rich, beautiful soil. I've also grown it on farms where you're in like what's called the Black Earth region of New York, which is like deep, deep, preposterously rich onion growing country. Um, and then I grow it on a roof and I can look at the two and tell you the roof doesn't thrive in the same way. What's been cool though. And again, this is why I call myself an horticulturalist, is because if I'm a plant person and I'm given a challenge like that, I know my limits on the soil because that's what the growing media engineers told us. So I can just look at the plants and think what's going to do well, no matter how stressed it is. And one example is, you know, plants, they have plant parts. They always make. They always make leaves. They always make roots, and they always make stems. And of all of those, on a roof in shallow soil in limited nutrients, they're going to be stressed and compacted. So stress is going to reduce the sugars in the plant. Uh, mm. And I'm I'm really abridging this. Yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, there's a lot of other botany that goes into this. But but generally speaking, they're going to be stunted and they're going to be more sharply flavored. Mm. So something like. Microgreens, which you grow for small size and you want them to have that bright pop of flavor are perfect hmm. for rooftop farming and conveniently enough um they are incredibly overpriced in new york city mm-hmm. so we have a crop that that we can sell at a ridiculous amount of money i would think for food to a chef thank you chefs. uh <laughs> and then it also botanically works okay on the rooftop um the other thing we grow a lot of is chili peppers which in moments of stress they get hotter anyway mm-hmm. and then They will bear a huge amount of fruit on an incredibly small plant. Um, So that's, you know, we look for things like that. And then that's, you know, the plant side. The coolest thing ever about the Eagle Tree Rooftop Farm is the people. Because you have a neighborhood like Greenpoint, which is where I live in Brooklyn, that has soil that's too toxic to actually handle. Um, A lot of pockets of New York are like this. The Greenpoint in particular is a little bit blighted. And so we created a green space that is in a safe space that has imported Mm. soils um, that people can learn how to grow on. And it's been awesome. My favorite thing ever is when someone comes up after not seeing them for a year or two and they show me they're flipping through their phone of all the photos of the garden that they've started because really they just needed a place to try something and be guided a little bit. And then I mean, it isn't rocket science. It's agriculture, you know, like we've been doing this for 10,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> so we just, we just need to be the springboard. And then from there, people just go flying off the high dive. And if that's what the roof provides, it is, that is, um, to me at the end of the day, the biggest value of it, you know? And then of course, if every roof in New York looked like us, I would be incredibly indebted to faith. But at the moment, what we have instead is a lot of green thumbs leaving our space and next step, of course, will be green roofs.
0: That's awesome. And it's really, I mean, it's, it has all the, all the trappings of a land-based farm I mean, you've got a, you've got a farm stand, you have interns, right? It's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. That's, it's, it's interesting actually that you phrase it that way, because I, I find myself fighting to differentiate what a farm would do versus what the rooftop farm would do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in truth, like from the economics perspective, the. It is. We run a market. We run a CSA. I think the key difference would be we also run a lot of film and photo shoots, mm-hmm. which farms do now increasingly, but we get that skyline. Yeah, yeah <laughs> So yeah. probably the biggest difference is my farm has been visited by Sasha Baron Cohen, and I watched <laughs> him, you know, shoot a shoot a movie scene, and that's that's like the big the big difference really. Um, and wow. then of course all the horticulture stuff I talked about, but yeah. but in function, yes, we we do try and operate like a like a a typical small scale sustainable farm. And I, and I appreciate that because I think it's really the first time people see that narrative. And in the same way, I once walked through chocolate trees and I was like, oh, chocolate tree. Mm-hmm. I think when people come up and they see how much we're sweating and they see how much we're schlepping and they see how you know, how many hours it takes, let alone months to grow the stuff, to get the food down to that market, that is a huge label for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they get to participate. You know, If someone gives me four hours a month and they leave and they're like oh i'm so thirsty and i'm like yeah that's growing a radish <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah yeah and you definitely have more of an appreciation for for food when you you see what it takes to make it i hope so it, you know? i hope so yeah so i'm curious to know how each of your various kind of like major projects in life serves you. Do you do you get something different out of each one of them or do they are they all part of kind of a cohesive
1: narrative, I guess, or
0: fulfillment for
1: you? Oh, I love this question. Um I would say I kind of put I put the priority on always being able to teach. I love teaching because I have been so lucky to fall so deeply in love with what I do. And when you even in talking to you I find myself getting re-excited about, I mean, I had a really hard day, but you, you know, I was dealing with bee stings and caterpillars <laughs> and all this stuff and it was a long day. I got up really early, but I, but I, I, I feel excited and alive about what I do. So I think, I think, uh, as long as everything I'm doing threads back to communicating it with other people, um, you know, I'm actually a very shy person. I'm a little ashamed of how, Infrequently, I admit that, but but I think the nice thing is that when you, when you figure out what you love and you get good at it, you gain a sense of confidence that nothing else can give you, mm-hmm. and teaching really reinforces that for me because, you know, if you ask me to stand up and explain, I'll say, well, okay, so for example, I'm very good at basic math because I need to do, you know, market math all the time, mm-hmm. but, if, but if I had to stand up and, and prepare something more formal, having been told as a child so often, you're not good at math, your sister's good at math. Um, I, I would be shy and I'd become myself, you know, I like, I fumble and I stutter and whatever, but, but as long as the work that I do is something that I'm interested in learning more about and I get to share it with other people and my sense of confidence floats along. I I am not, I'm sure, sounding different than any other living human being, but I just hope people are self-aware enough to realize how easy that is to capitalize on. Like Mm. just figure out what you love, become as good as you possibly can be, because otherwise it's a complete waste of your time. And then find a way to share it with other people because it's going to, that click will keep with you for the rest of your life. And I actually, I'm taking singing lessons. I've never sung. My whole family is terrible at singing. And I signed up for them because so many of my friends are really wonderful singers. And it's a way that they communicate and share time with each other that I've never been part of. Mm. And I decided I wanted to do it because I realized that when you, when you, you, you when you write your first book and you're a recognized expert, it's nice to try and find a place to fail again, because mm. I, I think I'm I think I'm good at, at falling in love with what I do. And I think I'm good at going hard. And um who knows, in 10 years, maybe I'll have written some songs that people will hear. Absolutely not, by the way. I'm absolutely not going to become a good singer, but I just, I I think, I think that's, for me, that's the thread between the work that I do is that I care about all of it very deeply. And then I'm always casting out to see what else I could get good at. And 10 years ago, not 10 years, seven years ago, I had a friend who was a very good bike rider. I got involved in bike riding. I became the, I won a woman's messenger championship and I was like, all right, I'm done. Um, I just think, you know, you got to throw that stuff out there. And then, and then all along, keep that steady hum of the the thing you actually do for a full time job, which is, uh, Mm -hmm. in my case, horticulture. Yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah, Yeah, I think there's something, it's a very healthy thing to challenge yourself with learning something new that, especially something that there's like nothing riding on it. You know what I mean? Like, you could learn to sing or you might not you know, but you know, you try and it gives you something to talk about at parties and um, keeps you engaged in a different way. <laughs> and it's like a frivolous throwaway well, thing. You know what I mean?
1: Or not. Yeah. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's that. And then there's also, I, I kind of shy away from the word challenge because I think people are so much more capable than they think they are. Mm. People are so reluctant to try new things. And I think it's because it's always framed as, as potential failure. And I, I myself know that it goes back to this question of curiosity. I refuse to just have a day that's empty ahead of me and be like, Oh, hum, I'll just fill the air, you know? And I don't mean that every day I wake up and I'm like singing lessons. It is, I just, <laughs> you know, there's, there has to be something, there has to be something that makes you something just go, huh? You know, and it can, mm-hmm. it can be watching a TV show. I don't care. As long as it part of you is like, Oh, I didn't realize I learned that or like, huh. And I I think why is because bored people just become jerks hmm. and I don't want to ever, I mean, I don't mind if I'm in pain and I'm a little mean to someone, but when I catch myself being snappy because I'm like, I actually, I, I can't remember the last time I was snappy because I'm bored. i am snappy because I'm tired or I'm snappy because I'm, you know, disappointed. But, but when you're, when you're bored, so you just become that dude on the train who like doesn't give up his seat because you're just like over it. That's a danger zone, and mm-hmm. and that's not why people were built to have brains. So, you know, go learn singing or something. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah.
0: <laughs> so you've gotten quite a bit of um, media coverage, including in the Selby, which is you know the arbiter of coolness, <laughs> style, and panache. Uh, so how did that? How did how did how did you wrangle that? You're right up their alley, I'll say that. But how did that happen?
1: That's so funny. So, so I'm glad you mentioned the Selby. Todd Selby is a very wonderful human being, and he actually studied um, part of the work that he did. Uh, I want to say he was at Berkeley, and I hope I'm not wrong. It was, he was out in California as an undergrad, and he studied tra- uh, strawberry agriculture. Oh. So we actually had quite a bit to bro about. Um, and then the dress that I wore in that shoot—it's this beautiful red dress—was actually um, my mother's. She bought it in Mexico, and she was eight. No, sorry, she was six months pregnant with me. She was looking for something to wear that would be beautiful but comfortable. Yeah. And um, so I'm proud to say, you know, 30 years later, I'm, I'm wearing my mother's pregnancy dress on the roof. But um, I, uh, how do you get involved in that kind of stuff? Uh, well, I'm 5'10". I'm very gregarious. And the rooftop farm that I happen to have is very photogenic. And I think all of those pieces fit together nicely. Um, and this goes back to, again, the, this me and that New York Times article Two years out of college, when I told my mom I was going to be a farmer, I don't think anyone would want to take photos of me, uh, except that the moment is right. It's Mm -hmm. not—it's not me or what I do. It's—it's—it's very much about food culture needing icons to latch onto, and and a rooftop farm with the view of Manhattan in the background is a really beautiful place. And I there's not a morning I wake up, whether it's at five to go take care of the chickens or at five because I have anxiety about taking care of the chickens, (laughs) where I'm not grateful that that what I love happens to be taking place Mm -hmm. in one of the coolest cities in the world. I love New York so much. I don't mind telling you this. New York's the coolest city in the world. (laughs) Um, It's so great. And it, and it provides spaces like that, you know, it's, you know, and I think, you know, probably Todd Selby is lucky in this in this way as well, where I think we both just really love what we do. Mm. And fortunately, it's taking place at a time and in a place that the, the the stars lined up and everybody thinks it's awesome. You know, God bless the Internet. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> I'm just growing carrots like one day it's going to be revealed. <laughs> you know, Annie Novak, you thought she was cool. She's really just growing vegetables. And I'm like, yeah, it's <laughs> true. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> <Suckers>. <laughs> Surprise! It was true all along. My hands are covered in chicken shit. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so people who have seen um, these photo essays on the Selby will know that each photo essay ends with a um, handwritten message or drawing or something question, questionnaire um, completed by the the subject and. Um, Yours had a quote that really, really struck me, and I'd love to just hear your thoughts about it. And um, the quote is, bravery, curiosity, innovation, plus hard work equals the new nine to five.
1: Hmm. Yes, well, that sort of encapsulates in a much more succinct form everything I've been saying for the last (laughs) million minutes. (laughs) It turns out I've only gotten more loquacious with age. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. I thought yeah. I well, just...
1: I mean, it's an aspirational quote, Dabney. I mean, its mm-hmm. I don't know that it is the new nine to five for everyone, but as I, as I have said, it is my hope that that is the case. Um, the best and brightest heroes in my life are people that uh, are brave and curious. And I think those two go hand in hand. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I really do. I think if you can fight to maintain your optimism and your, um, your openness and your, your enthusiasm for life throughout all the absolute garbage that life throws at you. Um, you will have, you will have, you will have clicked. You will have figured it out. Um, and uh, you know, you could maybe go to yoga and, and, and meditate and say the same thing, but I, I think it's much simpler. It really is just about waking up every day. And no matter how you actually feel when you wake up, deciding what the rest of your day is going to just kick ass. Mm-hmm. My nine to five at the botanical garden and my nine to five at the worktop farm, there's a lot of console pushing. There's a lot of organizing. There's a lot of, I mean, there, the things that I'm enthusiastic about are part of a larger package. And I think Mm -hmm. that's just how it goes. And I, and I always think about my, my friends who have been in long-term relationships and, you know, you talk about, we, we, I think as a culture talk very naturally about the ebb and flow and like, we're not, Sleeping together as much as we used to, or we're like, we, he doesn't treat me the way he used to. And, you know, I was just talking to someone very close to me about this the other day. Mm-hmm. And and the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, keeping an eye on the long view, mm-hmm. you in your job right now, in the moments where it's boring or you're frustrated, you're learning better communication skills. You're learning how to stay calm in the face of something that's super annoying. You're learning how to, you know, think about one thing while doing another. And I, I layer that stuff into my life all the time because. You know, my, my family and I, and I've talked about this a lot, but we, we as a family have a proclivity towards, I don't want to use sort of depression because it sounds so serious, but we, we all, I, well, I'll speak for myself. I know that I have mornings where I wake up and I'm like way too unhappy to move, mm-hmm. but you have to move, you know, like yeah. I'm breathing. Life is dope. And so, so <laughs> I think when I find myself in my job feeling trapped or frustrated or, and I swear to you, I've had some rough like months where I'm just like, why am I doing this? like literally everyone else. But at the end of the day, the good outweighs that. And I just try and find, I think Pico Ayer probably talks about this a lot, but you try and find spaces where you're still teaching yourself something. A lot of people that are looking to move from one situation to another, they want ownership mm-hmm. that, you know, you want, you want to make something that you you've crafted and you have control over and you feel good at. And I, that's a funny thing about the work world in general is that you know the two projects I created independently, growing shops on the rooftop farm have a huge amount of autonomy I mean mm-hmm. I am shocked at how much freedom I have with those i I will decide something, and it is so and keeping an eye on not losing your ability to work with other people, you know yeah. at some point the job the job that I had or i I should do more in guess. At some point, if you're, if I'm in a job I don't like or feel comfortable with, at some point that was a small organization and someone grew it. And at some point in that growth, something developed that just developed the wrong way. And then it just got stuck, got institutionally stuck. So I'm always keeping an eye out for those Mm -hmm. moments. Yeah. So I can mark them and then not follow that path down the labyrinth. Yeah. 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 Totally.
0: I want to be respectful of your time. Um, So I just have a few other questions. And this next one is real nuts and bolts. You live in Admittedly, the greatest but also one of the most expensive cities in the world, so how do you swing it? How do you make that work yeah i'm
1: i 'm okay with answering that question really honestly i I am very frugal i 've always been very frugal, and one of the secrets about living in New York, and this could maybe be true for any expensive city is is that you you don 't have to spend money. I mean, I have to pay rent, you know mm-hmm. uh, but everything else that is expensive about New York, the food, the entertainment, the, you know, a lot of it's really lifestyle related. So, and I'm speaking from a very privileged position in the sense that I've always found affordable housing. I've always, you know, I've always worked, I've always found work. Um, so all of those things were in place. And then additionally, I'm just not a person that really spends a lot of money, um, Mm -hmm the quickest way to do that is not drink a lot, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, or just have friends that are beer makers. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I just set goals for myself to save money. And I, and I worked really hard over the last decade and actually now, um, uh, you know, I I kind of like, no matter how much money I have or don't have, I just don't spend it really. Um, but the, you know, the neat thing too, is this goes, this goes back to boredom. Uh, if, if you don't need to, buy four drinks and have a huge dinner and then go to a movie which is like a thousand dollars in new york um i'm I, you know i surround myself with friends that, that want to go to cool lectures or hang out in the park or go for a run or do all my favorite nerdy things that are free 99 yeah so that totally. helps yeah that helps
0: um and then you you're also a brand ambassador for several companies
1: yes how does that work yes indeed okay. In fact, I wish I had the magic answer to that. I don't know. I get some phone calls. I get calls often asking if I will help facilitate some concept. I don't know how else to explain it. It's not my world. I grow plants, <laughs> but um, but I'll say no to a bunch. I mean, I've said no to the things that felt very disconnected from what I do, and and then um, and then generally, what's what's neat, and this is true for. Bogs, which is a footwear company I work with, and Miss Meyers Clean Day, which is a very reputable cleaning supplies, or I shouldn't say household goods, and um, delicious natural product aromatics. Uh, uh, Made Well, which is a, a, a wonderful clothing division of J.Crew, and Seiko is the other one I recently worked with that does um, really cool um, sustainable technology wristwatches. All, all of those were chosen because part of – Part of the thing I'm interested in, of course, is acknowledging that there's a very strong consumer culture in our country. And while I very much stay on the sidelines of that and pretty much always have, I'm kind of like beating my own drum on the, what what shall I wear today? And all that sort of thing. Um, I am aware that I'm in New York City and I'm aware that I'm standing on a rooftop and I'm aware that there's a megaphone that's been put in my hands that I'm responsible for. And when I see a company that is doing a good job creating a responsible product Um, I feel like that's my way of kind of like dipping my toe in the mainstream stream, because, Mm -hmm. you know, I spend a lot of time on the outer far bank kind of fishing in my own little cray pond. And every now and again, if you want to see that there's some sort of sea change, you have to participate. So um, I came, I came, I come at it that way, basically. Like if I, if I get a call and I talk to representatives and it seems good. And then the other nice thing is that these companies um, have been very generous in their support, usually through products of the rooftop farm. And I have to keep in mind always that I myself started farming with very little money, but a lot of people and a lot of resource, you know, my, the first farmer ever worked for gave me, you know, flannel shirts, out of a nun's chest in his barn when he found out that because I didn't have any winter clothes that I was farming, I was digging kale out of the snow. And he's like, you should go put on my old flannel. (laughs) So with these, with these brand ambassadorships, you know, I'm always looking for opportunities to support my staff and, Mm -hmm. you know, Boggs Footwear is a great example of this, but they um, have given us really high quality, lovely boots every season, um, which I think my, Farm team will use for years to come on their own farm ventures, and that that makes me happy yeah <laughs> um so that is certainly a huge part of the relationship with supporting their brand and having them support what work we do on a small scale and then on a larger scale um you know the notion that urban farming can be supported around the country
0: yeah
1: so. well,
0: thank you so much <laughs> okay. i really uh, t- really enjoyed our conversation. I really appreciate it
1: likewise it's uh it's definitely good to talk to you and um And thanks. This has given me a lot to think about as well. So I look forward to listening to all the other episodes also.
0: (laughs) That's it for today. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or at tastygrinds.com, where you can also find show notes, subscribe to our email list, or let us know who you'd like to hear interviewed. Until next time, thanks for listening.